Chapter Four of the Story of the Atlantic Telegraph. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of the Atlantic Telegraph by Henry M. Field. Chapter Four, Crossing Newfoundland. There is nothing in the world easier than to build a line of railroad or of telegraph on paper. You have only to take the map and mark the points to be connected, and then with a single sweep of the pencil to draw the line along which the iron track is to run. In this airy flight of the imagination, distances are nothing. A thousand leagues vanish at a stroke, all obstacles disappear, the valleys are exalted, and the hills are made low. Soaring arches span the mountain streams, and the chasms are leaped in safety by the fire-drawn cars. Very different is it to construct a line of railroad or of telegraph in reality, to come with an army of laborers with axes on their shoulders to cut down the forests, and with spades in their hands to cast up the highway. Then poetry sinks to prose, and instead of flying over the space on wings, one must traverse it on foot, slowly and with painful steps. Nature asserts her power, and, as if resentful of the disdain with which man in his pride affected to leap over her, she piles up new barriers in his way. The mountains, with their rugged sides, cannot be moved out of their place. The rocks must be cleft in twain, to open a passage for the conqueror, before he can begin his triumphal march. The woods thicken into an impassable jungle, and the morass sinks deeper, threatening to swallow up the horse and his rider, until the rash projector is startled at his own audacity. Then it becomes a contest of forces between man and nature, in which, if he would be victorious, he must fight his way. The barriers of nature cannot be lightly pushed aside, but must yield at last only to time and toil, and man's unconquerable will. Seldom have all these obstacles been combined in a more formidable manner to obstruct any public work than against the attempt to build a telegraph line across the island of Newfoundland. The distance, by the route to be traversed, was over four hundred miles, and the country was a wilderness, an utter desolation. Yet through such a country, over mountain and moor, through tangled brake and rocky gorge, over rivers and through morasses, they were to build a road. Not merely a line of telegraph stuck on poles, but a good and traversable bridle road, eight feet wide with bridges of the same width, from end to end of the island. But nothing daunted, the new company undertook the great work with spirit and resolution. Gisborne had made a beginning, and got some thirty or forty miles out of St. John's. This was the easiest part of the whole route, being in the most inhabited region of the island. But here he broke down, just where it was necessary to leave civilization behind, and to plunge into the wilderness. Intending to resume the work on a much larger scale, Mr. White, the vice-president, was sent down to St. John's to be the general agent of the company, while Mr. Matthew D. Field, as a practical engineer, was to have charge of the construction of the line. The latter soon organized a force of six hundred men, which he pushed forward in detachments to the scene of operations. And now began to appear still more the difficulties of the way. To provide subsistence for man and beast, it was necessary to keep near the coast, for all supplies had to be sent round by sea. Yet in following the coastline, they had to wind around bays, or to climb over headlands. If they struck into the interior, they had to cut their way through the dense and tangled wood. There was not a path to guide them, not even an Indian trail. When lost in the forest, they had to follow the compass, as much as the mariner at sea. To keep such a force in the field, that, like an army, produced nothing, but consumed fearfully, required constant attention to the commissary department. The little steamer Victoria, which belonged to the company, was kept plying along the coast, carrying barrels of pork and potatoes, 
kegs of powder, pickaxes and spades and shovels, and all the implements of labor. These were taken up to the heads of the bays, and thence carried, chiefly on men's backs, over the hills to the light of the road. In many respects, it had the features of a military expedition. It moved forward in a great camp. The men were sheltered in tents, when sheltered at all, or in small huts which they built along the road. But more often they slept on the ground. It was a wild and picturesque sight to come upon their camp in the woods, to see their fires blazing at night, while hundreds of stalwart sleepers lay stretched on the ground. Sometimes, when encamped on the hills, they could be seen afar off at sea. It made a pretty picture then, but the hardy pioneers thought little of the figure they were making, when they were exposed to the fury of the elements. Often the rain fell in torrents, and the men, crouching under their slight shelter, listened sadly to the sighing of the wind among the trees, answered by the desolate moaning of the sea. Yet in spite of all obstacles, the work went on. All through the long days of summer, and through the months of autumn, every cove and creek along the southern coast heard the plashing of their oars, and the steady stroke of their axes resounded through the forest. But as the season advanced, all these difficulties increased. For nearly half the year, the island is buried in snow. Blinding drifts sweep over the moors, and choke up the paths of the forest. How at such times the expedition lay floundering in the woods, still struggling to force its way onward. What hardships and sufferings the men endured. All this is a chapter in the history of the telegraph which has not been written, and which can never be fully told. The gentlemen of England, who dwell at home at ease, and who are just proud of the extent of their dominions and the life and power which pervade the whole, may here find another example of the way in which great works are borne forward in distant parts of their empire. But to carry out such an enterprise requires headwork as well as handwork. Engineering in the field must be supported by financiering at home. It was here the former enterprise broke down, and now it needed constant watching to keep the wheels in steady motion. The directors in New York found the demand increasing day by day. The minds which had grasped the large design must now descend to an infinity of detail. They had to keep an army of men at work, at a point a thousand miles away, far beyond their immediate oversight. Drafts for money came thick and fast. To provide all these required constant attention. How faithfully they gave to this enterprise, not only their money, but their time and thought, few will know. But those who have seen can testify. In the autumn of that year, 1854, the writer moved to the city of New York, and was almost daily at the house of Mr. Field. Yet for months it was hardly possible to go there of an evening without finding the library occupied by the company. Indeed, so uniformly was this the case that the telegraph began to be regarded by the family as an unwelcome intruder, since it put an interdict on the former social evenings and quiet domestic enjoyment. The circumstance shows the ceaseless care on the part of the directors which the enterprise involved. As a witness of their incessant labor, it is due to them to bear this testimony to their patience and their fidelity. When they began the work, they hoped to carry the line across Newfoundland in one year, completing it in the summer of 1855. In anticipation of this, Mr. Field was sent by the company to England at the close of 1854 to order a cable to span the Gulf of St. Lawrence, to connect Cape Bray with the island of Cape Breton. This was his first voyage across the ocean on the business of the telegraph, to be followed by more than forty others. In London he met for the first time Mr. John W. Brett, with whom he was to be afterward connected in the larger enterprise of the Atlantic Telegraph. Mr. Brett was the father of submarine telegraphy in Europe, though in carrying out his first projects he was largely indebted to Mr. Crampton, a well-known engineer of London, who aided him both with advice and capital. With this invaluable assistance, he had stretched two lines across the British Channel. From his success in passing these waters, 
he believed a line might yet be stretched from continent to continent. The scientific men of England were not generally educated up to that point. The bare suggestion was received with a smile of incredulity. Footnote A. One or two exceptions there were not to be forgotten. Professor William Thompson of the University of Glasgow, then a young man, but full of the enthusiasm of science, was already prepared to welcome such a project with confidence of success. As early as October and November, 1854, he wrote to the Secretary of the Royal Society of London, declaring his belief in its practicability. The letters are published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society for 1855. Such faith was not visionary, for it was based on clearer knowledge and more thorough investigation, and gave promise of those eminent services which this gentleman was afterwards to render to the cause of electrical science. Mr. C. F. Varley, also, was one of the first to perceive the possibility of an ocean telegraph, as he was to contribute greatly to its final success. End footnote. But Mr. Brett had faith, even at that early day, and entered heartily into the scheme of Mr. Field. To show his interest, he afterward took a few shares in the Newfoundland line, the only Englishman who had any part in the preliminary work. The summer came, and the work in Newfoundland, though not complete, was advancing, and the cable in England was finished and shipped on board the bark Sarah L. Bryant to cross the sea. Anticipating its arrival, the company chartered a steamer to go down to Newfoundland to assist in its submersion across the Gulf of St. Lawrence. As yet they had no experience in the business of laying a submarine telegraph, and did not doubt that the work could be accomplished with the greatest ease. It was therefore to be an excursion of pleasure as well as of business, and accordingly they invited a large party to go with them to witness the unaccustomed spectacle. As we chance to be among the guests, we have the best reason to remember it. Seldom has a more pleasant party been gathered for any expedition. Representing the company were Mr. Field, Mr. Peter Cooper, Mr. Robert W. Lober, and Professor Morse, while among the invited guests were gentlemen of all professions, clergymen, doctors and lawyers, artists and editors. In the groups on the deck were the venerable Dr. Gardner Spring and Reverend J. M. Sherwood, Dr. Louis A. Serre, Bayard Taylor, the well-known traveler Mr. Fitz James O'Brien, and Mr. John Mullally, the three latter gentlemen representing leading papers of New York. Footnote B. The letters of Mr. Taylor, which first appeared in the New York Tribune, have been since collected in one of his volumes of travel. Mr. O'Brien, a very brilliant writer, who afterward fell in our Civil War, fighting bravely for his adopted country, furnished some spirited letters to the Times. But Mr. Mullally, who appeared for the Herald, was the most persevering attendant on the telegraph, and the most indefatigable correspondent. He accompanied not only this expedition, but several others. He was on board the Niagara in 1857, and again in both the expeditions of 1858, and on the final success of the cable, prepared a volume, which was published by the Appletons, giving a history of the enterprise. This contains the fullest account of all those expeditions which have been given to the public. I have had frequent occasion to refer to his book, and can bear witness to the interest of the narrative. It is written with spirit, and doubtless would have had a longer life, if the cable itself had not come to an untimely end. End footnote. Besides these, the party included a large number of ladies who gave life and animation to the company. Well does the writer recall the morning of departure, the seventh day of August, 1855. Never did a voyage begin with fairer omens. It was a bright summer day. The sky was clear and the water smooth. We were on the deck of the good ship James Adger, long known as one of the fine steamers belonging to the Charleston Line. She was a swift ship and cut the water like an arrow. Thus we sped down the bay, and turning into the ocean, skimmed along the shores of Long Island. The sea was tranquil as a lake. 
The whole party were on deck, scattered in groups here and there, watching the sails on the shore. A rude telegraph instrument furnished entertainment and instruction, especially as we had Professor Morse to explain his marvelous invention, which some who listened then for the first time understood. At Halifax several of us left the ship, and came across Nova Scotia, passing through that lovely region of Acadia, which Longfellow has invested with such tender interest in his poem of Evangeline. Thence we crossed the Bay of Fundy to St. John in New Brunswick, and returned by way of Portland. The James Adger went on to Newfoundland, steering first to Port Obasque near Cape Ray, where they hoped to meet the bark which was to come from England with a cable on board. To their disappointment it had not arrived. Mr. Canning, the engineer who was to lay the cable, had come out by steamer, and was on hand, but the bark was not to be seen. Having to wait several days and wishing to make the most of their time, they sailed for St. John's, where they were received by the provincial government and the people with unbounded hospitality, after which they returned to Porto Basque, and were now rejoiced to discover the little bark hidden behind the rocks. It was decided to land the cable in Cape Ray Cove. After a day or two's delay in getting the end to the shore, they started across the Gulf of St. Lawrence, the adger towing the bark. The sea was calm, and though they were obliged to move slowly, yet all promised well, till they were about halfway across, when a gale arose, which pitched the bark but so violently that, with its unwieldy bulk, it was in danger of sinking. After holding on for hours in the vain hope that it would abate, the captain cut the cable to save the bark, and thus, after they had paid out forty miles, it was hopelessly lost, and the adger returned to New York. This loss was owing partly to the severity of the gale, and partly to the fact that the bark, which had the cable on board, was wholly unfitted for the purpose. It was a sailing vessel, and had to be towed by another ship. In this way it was impossible to regulate its motion. It was too fast or too slow. It was liable to be swayed by the sea, now giving a lurch ahead, and now dragging behind. Experience showed that a cable should always be laid from a steam vessel, which could regulate its own motion, running out freely when all went smoothly and checking its speed instantly when it was necessary to ease up the strain or to pay out more slack to fill up the hollows of the sea. This first loss of a submarine cable was a severe disappointment to the company. It postponed the enterprise for a whole year. To make a new cable would require several months, and the season was so far advanced that it could not be laid before another summer. Was it strange if some of the little band began to ask if they had not lost enough, and to reason that it was better to stop where they were than to go on still farther, casting their treasures into the sea. But there was in that little company a spirit of hope and determination, could not be subdued, that ever cried, Once more unto the breach, good friends! After some deliberation, it was resolved to renew the attempt. Mr. Field again sailed for England to order another cable, which was duly made and sent out the following summer. This time, warned by experience, the company invited no party and made no display. The cable was placed on board a steamer fitted for the purpose, from which it was laid without accident and remained in perfect working order for nine years. Meanwhile the work on land had been pushed forward without ceasing. After incredible labor, the company had built a road and a telegraph from one end of Newfoundland to the other, four hundred miles, and, as if that were not enough, had built also another line, one hundred and forty miles in length, in the island of Cape Breton. The first part of their work was now done. The telegraph had been carried beyond the United States through the British provinces to St. John's in Newfoundland, a distance from New York of over 1,000 miles. The cost of the line thus far had been about a million of dollars, and of this the whole burden, with but trifling exceptions, had fallen upon the original projectors. Mr. Field had been putting in over $200,000 in money, 
and Mr. Cooper, Mr. Taylor, and Mr. Roberts, each a little less. No other contributors beyond the six original subscribers had come, except Professor Morse, Mr. Robert W. Lober, Mr. Wilson G. Hunt, and Mr. John W. Brett. The list of directors and officers remained as it was at first, except that this year, 1856, Mr. White died, and his place as director was filled by Mr. Hunt, and that Mr. Field was chosen vice-president and Mr. Lober secretary. In all the operations of the company thus far, the various negotiations, the plan of the work, the oversight of his execution, and the correspondence with the officers and others, mainly devolved upon Mr. Field. And so at length, after two long and weary years, these bold projectors had accomplished half their work. They had passed over the land and under the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and having reached the farthest point of the American coast, they now stood upon the cliffs of Newfoundland, looking off upon the wide sea. End of chapter 4 Recording by Alex C. Talander www.bookbanter.net